0: Hey guys, this is Emmett. Welcome to your latest installment of Exhaust, your weekly podcast about why nothing feels possible. Today I am here with John. What's up, John?
1: Hey, what's up, man?
0: So today is gonna be a fun one. As I think we said earlier, we were going to expand American canon into directors as well. And today we have perhaps an idiosyncratic choice, but a director that is near and dear to our hearts. And it is none other, but the God macho, John Milius himself.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So for today we watched the documentary Milius, uh, which Mm -hmm. came out in 2013. And we watched, of course, Conan the barbarian. And the, I think today, much lesser known, Wendon, the lion, which very interesting movie
0: just a totally like <laughs> delightful absurd movie i'm not even really sure it works to be honest like compared to some of his other films it was worth watching because i think it it tells us a lot about him
1: and if like what, he, what he really values on tv i would watch it like it's good
0: it, sunday amc
1: right like <laughs> and i wouldn't regret the times even if it were like the fifth or sixth time. It's like that kind of movie where right. you're just like, I feel good now.
0: Yeah, it's like <laughs> I've just finished raking leaves for my Sunday chores. And I'm like, all right, no one else is in the living room. I'm just going to eat some chips and watch a movie. What am yeah, I going like to watch? I'm like, oh, yeah, like Indiana Jones type the wind, of thing. Yeah, the wind of the lion is on. So yeah. maybe we should just fill in a little bit of background about John Milius. John Milius comes out of the whole California film school usc i think film school that produces spielberg george lucas terrence malick who else
1: they're involved with coppola i don't know coppola. if he's like directly yeah. with them or not but he ends up in the mix of course
0: yeah i love the documentary because every shot of scorsese is him being as nice as possible about someone who he probably admired as a personality but did not admire as a director <laughs> <laughs> it's just marty trying his best to come uh, john millius
1: i really yeah the i saw Millius when it came out and it was cool to re-watch it because it reminded me of a lot of things that i would forgotten but it was cool to see how like they're all in film school they're just making uh in their own words like just as many movies as they can get away with a day at this point going to film school is like not any sort of ticket to doing movies commercially is how they're like, there's three film schools and no one from them has ever made it big and they're pretty new. So it seems like the way a lot of these guys were looking at it is they just wanted to make movies. This afforded them the opportunity to do it at least for a while. And then they would figure it out afterwards. Like what happened next? Yeah. Maybe they'd
0: get a job in the industry and work their way up. And it's clear that, obviously like George Lucas tells this story about how there were competing film crews, right. And they had a project to finish a short movie. Mm -hmm. And he was the only one who finished and not only did Lucas finish, it was good. And the professor said, well, we're not going to screen it because it will make the other crews feel bad. And Milius, was on one of the rival crew crews stood up and punched the teacher in the face, (laughs) (laughs) which rules. And it shows that he was this like atavistic man of honor, that that would be his reaction.
1: You know? One of the things that really I loved about being able to see them talk about him was you can just tell like how much George Lucas likes John Elias. (laughs) He was like consistently this lone voice who was trying to explain him to a bunch of people who would probably never understand. But whenever you get someone trying to offer this really like generous narrative of like, John's not a crazy right-winger, he's a man out of his time. And (laughs) if you just understood that, everything about him would make a lot more sense. And I think you can get like, oh, okay, like George probably looked up to him quite a bit when they were in school. And I think that's lasted well into their old age.
0: Right, because there's something brave about John Milius just to the extent that there's also something reckless about him, you know, and he is this man out of time. You know, he wants to go to war. He wants to go to Vietnam. Apocalypse Now is really his title, right? Like there are all these like peace signs that like, you know, had uh, peace sign buttons that had like a peace sign in the middle and then in that hippie-ish font Nirvana Now. And he had one made that flipped the peace sign around. So it looked like a B-52 bomber and it's said apocalypse now, (laughs) you know, and and Milius had asthma. He couldn't, he couldn't do it. He couldn't become like the warrior that he wanted to be. And like many young men, he could imagine dying, but he couldn't imagine staying dead just like he couldn't imagine living beyond when he thought he ought to die. Mm -hmm. And so he had to figure his whole life out and He goes to see, he doesn't even know what a director is, but a nearby (laughs) theater is showing a run of Kurosawa films.
1: Yeah, like one whole week of just nothing but Kurosawa. Kurosawa,
0: Which is, I mean. Like, wow, sick. That's beautiful. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. that's really really lucky. And he watches all of them. And he's like, whatever this is, I want to do this. You know? Mm -hmm. Which makes sense, right? If anybody's seen the original Seven Samurai or Throne of Blood, I mean, anything that Kurosawa has done. I mean, it's really... You can also see where Milius gets like his love of the kinetic. Mm -hmm. You know, when we talk about Conan, we'll talk about the sort of the lyric kinetics of that movie, which are very surprising for reasons that we have to talk about Milius and his character first to really showcase what's so surprising and beautiful. I think beautiful about Conan as a movie. So anyway, Milius doesn't get, get his war, right? So he decides to become a director. And he also has this, I share this too. I felt a deeper spiritual kinship with John Milius. I was almost moved to tears several times by just how people would talk about him and trying to explain him and how I felt like someone was explaining part of myself that was in this other person I will never meet that is somehow still alive. And... I felt like less lonely and I understood why I had like this certain visceral response to his movies, even the ones that I think aren't so good, you know, but so Milius is this man at a time, people call him a right winger. He does say insanely incendiary right wing things. He's a provocateur. He calls himself a Zen anarchist. He also calls himself a Maoist at certain points. <laughs> at the same time, he's like a fucking consummate cold warrior. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like There's no way to... There are very few other ways to read Red Dawn. I mean, of course, when it shows clips of Roger Ebert reviewing Red Dawn, Roger Ebert misunderstood everything that happens in that movie. I haven't seen it in a long time. But saw it as nothing but knuckle-dragging adolescent bravado rather than something about the... Tragedy of a Sturm undrang moment of honor that only gets remembered on a plaque no one visits anymore in a public park. Right. And I think that sense of the tragic life, but the grandeur of honor, glory and excellence is exactly what makes Milius so out of his own time and just so enigmatic and wonderful, just wonderful.
1: Yeah, I definitely, it's something I think about occasionally where um, like if I'm reading some kind of like big treatment of a historical period, <clears throat> there might be some moment of editorialization and like the introduction or the conclusion where the author just makes it clear how very far they are from what they're treating. Like there might be a moment where they say, let's not imagine ourselves too similar to these people. And in truth, it might be very difficult for any of us to have a conversation with one of them because we might find them so odiously different from our own set of values. I, I, every time I read something like that, I'm just like,
0: I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> like, if, you're not, if, if you're reading the Odyssey and you're not cheering Odysseus on, I can't relate to you. You know, people yeah, are just I don't like, think oh, he's such a liar about... and a bad man. And I'm just like, yeah, he's great. <laughs> he's the yeah of it's not turns you know
1: <laughs> it's not that i don't disagree or whatever with like things that have happened or that i like i think that's the thing is it's like that it doesn't threaten me to be able to like be immersed in something like that it's not like i'm gonna lose my way <laughs> no that whatever exactly. set of ethics that i've like lived by is suddenly like washed away by like it's more like i'm able to or these things demand of you more to the point, some form of like recognition, where the it stands apart from you, and it just is. There's like a good Justin E. Smith, yeah, piece about this. Maybe we'll find it and link it. It's well worth a read.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, I think at the top of the documentary, Sam Elliott. Has, you could just watch like the Sam Elliott quote, you know, with his mustache and his like super manly voice, and he just says. John Milius didn't make movies for pussies. He didn't make movies for women. He made movies for men.
1: (laughs) That, in a way, encapsulates, I think, the showmanship, the bravado, the character, everything.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right. It was just. And to hear it in Sam Elliott's voice, right? Like, I think that's the. That's the real thing. Cause if Oliver Stone, who's featured as one of Milius's interlocutors and critics, which I thought it was, he's a good foil throughout the documentary that keeps it from being a love fest, which I think is important to get the full look to the extent that you can on Milius. So mm. Milius is a great, Oh, you wanted to,
1: I was just going to throw in some more yeah. interesting contextualization. Please do. So, so coming out of uh, film school, what's really interesting to us now is Steven Spielberg and George Lucas are like household names. George Lucas hasn't had to make a movie in like 30 years, <laughs> you know. <laughs> He's been fine. Yeah. And, but when they were getting out of film school, that entire set, the person who seemed most likely to succeed and was by far the most I don't know if I would say famous, but like successful and sought after by people in the film industry was John Milius for his script writing, which when I saw it the first time kind of like blew my mind because here's a guy that most people Mm -hmm. probably haven't heard that much about anymore, but at the time it seemed like he was set to far outstrip all of his peers and kind of in the beginning, he's totally in the running with them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he writes a script to Dirty Harry I think that's really his big break, you know, he's sort of-
1: Uncredited apparently, but I guess there's an original, he did a rewrite, which basically changed most of it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, (laughs) so uh, yeah, they'd call him in to punch up a script. I mean, I think he's even uncredited on the script for Apocalypse Now, which had a bunch of different people working on that. So Michael Hare, we've read, or I've, I've mentioned his book Dispatches, right? There are scenes ripped directly from that book in Apocalypse Now, but Milius writes the, the Kilgore, Robert Duvall's characters, like iconic lines, like, you smell that? Yeah, napalm. That's the smell now. of victory. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, or like, I think that's like one of the most iconic lines in the thing because the way in which like Milius could understand the soul of the characters that he would write. Or that he had to write for was unparalleled, and there's something that's so spiritually true about the phrase "I love this metal of napalm in the morning" that comes out of that character. It could only come from that character. It could only come out of Robert Duvall's mouth, you know. But the to me the funniest and probably my favorite quote from the whole movie. It was also written by John Milius, which is "Charlie, don't surf," mm-hmm. <laughs> which is just also fantastic, you know and He helped direct Martin Sheen when Martin Sheen does the voiceovers. And Martin Sheen was really struggling. Voiceovers are really hard to do, hard to do well. It's hard to get the emotions right. And Martin Sheen is a total pacifist, you know. And so the story is that, you know, macho John Milius puts a Colt 45 a semi-automatic pistol on like the desk. And he's just like, that's cocked and loaded with one in the chamber. I want you to put your hand on it while you read. <laughs> and our machine is like freaked out holding this fucking loaded gun. And it made him so nervous that he became unself-conscious in how he would deliver his lines. And that's how he got through the voiceover process for Apocalypse now.
1: Yeah, the the gun nut aspect of John is really funny because a lot of these stories make absolutely no sense in our current context whatsoever. But in a, in yeah. a way, you can see these, and now with the value, the benefit of hindsight, I can tell how oh, this guy was always going to run out of rope eventually. Right, <laughs> totally. A story where he's meeting a studio president, <laughs> like the president of a giant film studio, and he walks in pulls out a gun, puts it on the desk, and says, just so you know where we stand.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and it's the the sort of trap he fell into, right? In order to become the guy who could get the work that he got, he had to become this persona, you know? A lot of his movies obviously didn't do as well as his peers, right? Like Big Wednesday, which is Milius' surfing film I haven't seen, but honestly, the clips from it, it seems lovely and again, understand something about, we're going to do episodes on Catherine Bigelow later. And I think she might be a good person to juxtapose with Milius because they're both very, very interested in masculinity in mm. manhood. Maybe we should do a double feature. Maybe we should do Big Wednesday and Point Break.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> that would be so awesome.
0: <laughs> yeah, we should totally do that. We'll do that. Okay. We'll put yeah, that on that the was a
1: really. I now like that you bring that up. In other interviews I've read, they talk about like the accusations that these movies are kind of hyper violent and stupid to a certain extent or whatever. And I thought his answer to that was pretty interesting, which is that he kind of disagrees that they're stupid and that for him, violence always has a really direct moral point and it never goes unanswered within the narrative or within the film. And I think that that was always something really important for him and like for instance, he was like Die Hard. That's like trash. Like I have no mm-hmm. interest in Die Hard because the violence is stupid and pointless, and it has nothing right. to tell you about life. Same it's thing like with slapstick. Top Gun. Yeah, someone brought up Top Gun in like a Q and A Q&A session at a film festival, and you just did a thumbs down. <laughs> <And> <laughs> awesome.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, what people need to understand is that there is like a metaphysics of violence. There's like this warrior ethos to what he's doing. He's interested in honor and he's interested in sacrifice. I mean, this is what makes him atavistic. And I think guys like Ebert, consummate progressive, I like some of what Ebert has to say about film. I've learned a lot from him, right? Right. But in guys like Milius and in John Carpenter, Ebert really just could not understand what they were interested in because they were just frankly, totally different types of guys right? Like, Red Dawn is a consummate movie of the late Cold War. And people look back on it, and they're just like, wow, the Reagan era was really crazy. People don't understand that that movie probably cost John Milius his career. Mm. Because Red Dawn comes out at a time when people kind of feel like the Cold War is thawing. They don't want to do the saber-rattling anymore. You know, like, it's passe, especially in Hollywood, to be, like, that type of hawkish conservative. Now, I don't really think that Milius was like, I mean, I do think he probably was a Cold Warrior. I just called him a consummate Cold Warrior earlier, but that's not the point of Red Dawn. Red yeah. Dawn was in an occasion to meditate on other things, you know, that come out of conflict and violence and things like that. He's very interested in people rising to the occasion and what war does to them and who they become. And that, you know, the violence never goes unanswered. It begets more violence until there's some type of closure. I mean, the ending of Conan is beautiful in that way, right? Like I remember like rewatching it and I totally forgot how the ending goes when Conan like scales this ziggurat to behead his enemy and then holds it above (laughs) after decapitating him to this crowd of acolytes and throws it tumbling down the steps of the ziggurat. You know, and this is the guy who employed the people that killed his mother and slaughtered his village. You know, it's a classic revenge tale, but it's also bound up in the riddle of iron. In other words, what does it even mean? What does power mean? What does violence mean? That is something that never gets fully explicated in the film. You only see it worked out through a chain of events that are tragic, spectacular, exhilarating and brutal
1: yeah there's no i wouldn't accuse him of being nostalgic in certain ways if only because it's not that optimistic or i don't know yeah i guess optimism in the recently coined lash use of the we can go that way yeah (laughs) now that we're reading (laughs) that book i don't think it's that optimistic or i don't think it attempts to say that anything was like necessarily better or worse at any other time. It's more of a really, it's an embrace of something without any reservations. And that means, you know, it's something I thought about when we were watching The Wind and the Lion was that it could be seen as American propaganda, that film. We can get into that later. But I think Mm -hmm. ultimately that it's far too exuberant
0: it's too weird like that's why i said okay we should just talk about it now actually and start unpacking this so the wind and the lion is i mean i love what harrison ford says in the documentary (laughs) it's just like this film is like ridiculous right so it is sean connery plays like an he's like a
1: berber like royal slash jihadist
0: with full (laughs) scottish accent yeah, I forget this is like place, 10 Red October. Ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's one thing that I'll say. Like when Sean Connery got asked to do Red October, he was like, there aren't enough speeches. I, I want more speeches. The guy whose office was next to Milius, the director who was going to work with Sean Connery, was just like, well, what, you, what about John Millius?" And he was just like, I love John Milius. <laughs> so like all of Milius, all of Sean, all of his speeches in, the Hunt for Red October are written by yeah. um uh, written, written by Milius. So anyway, he plays a Berber. I forget who plays Teddy Roosevelt, but it's really about this clash of civilizations and these two exuberant leaders who embody something of the warrior ethos of their respective civilizations, right? And there are great monologues, you know. I mean, that's basically the plot. Like, nothing really gets resolved. Like, there are cool set pieces. Some of mm. the monologues are great. Like, Teddy Roosevelt's speech about how it should be the American grizzly rather than the eagle that represents the American people. Because it, when provoked, it reacts wildly, sometimes blindly. But it has this, like, noble, primordial element to it. Yeah, and, foolish,
1: but noble and, fool- and alone.
0: And alone. Yeah.
1: Oh, that part was great. And he's talking about how people, of the world, they may learn to fear us, but they will never love us.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's just a wonderful moment. And you yeah. get these moments where like Sean Connery, this Berber is like, well, what type of rifle does Teddy Roosevelt have? And his captor, uh, his, his captive, this American woman says a Winchester. And he's never heard of this gun. It's an American gun, you know? <laughs> And there are great set pieces, like the Marines marching into, like Morocco, I think it is, pissing off the entire local community with like how just the fucking jacked and well dressed and macho and organized they are. You know, awesome horse riding yeah, scenes.
1: I love the like the setting is basically in Morocco in the early 20th century
0: mm-hmm.
1: and late 19th century ish. So the situation there is like extremely like colonial -colonial. Mm proto-colonial the Germans have troops there the French have troops there Mm -hmm. there's a sultan who's sort of nominally still in charge and his uncle who is like mm, he? it was like something that basically the equivalent of like a count or a duke I guess and he's really in charge they're given a kind of air of like extreme decadence (laughs) and then layered on top of that you don't see much of the French, just a little bit more of the Germans, but they yeah. all kind of have a sickly old world look to them Yeah, <laughs> where you're yeah. like these guys, you know, they're devious or they're not good either. This is like bad stuff. And it's just sort of like the two shining poles in this movie are like the desert Berbers who are rebelling against what they see as a government that is totally sold out the country to the Europeans. And then the Americans who are only here because they need to, save face and protect their interests overseas and they don't want to be pushed around and like it's really interesting how close they were able to make teddy roosevelt and the rice feel to each other despite the fact that they're never going to meet each other.
0: I think that that's sort of the magic of the movie. I mean, I ultimately think that the movie is like kind of like unsuccess. it never becomes more than a sum of its parts, but the soundtrack is fantastic. Some of the shots are great. And as John said, it's exuberant. And I was having like, there are parts where it does just feel like almost like American propaganda. And I think that is, I mean, I do think Milius was a patriot but you can almost make the mistake of taking that too much at face value. And one of the questions you need to ask yourself is like, what is the American propagandistic element serving in the plot? And it's really to understand this mythic figure that Milius really loves, which is Teddy Roosevelt, you know, and it's really to basically plumb the depths of a certain type of masculine spirit. And that's what I think he's more interested in than America is like more like an abstraction, you know,
1: I think one of the tensions that I always kind of sense anytime there is this element of like, Oh, is this film pro American? It's always that there's too much of his extremely, like pre-modern ethic, where that idea simply doesn't make sense. Like loving America almost just doesn't compute in that world. It's, I have a personal fealty to the valor of Mr. Roosevelt. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) And thus that will manifest itself in my appreciation of like the valor of his, and you know, it's like, it's more personal and interconnected and intertwined into a system of, of thinking about things yeah. that doesn't exactly neatly take into itself an idea like abstract patriotism.
0: Right. Or like, like tr- a love for the founding fathers or something like that. Like you get, when you take a look at the set design in the American scenes, the scenes in the White House, the scenes in the Senate, you see artifacts of America's conquests in the Western territories, you see in the paintings in the background and the pedigree of the men who are discussing things, that there's almost this, like, Plutarchian lore element to what's going on that can't be ascribed to, like, I really love America's, like, liberal, like, entrepreneurial spirit. Right. <laughs> like those things just like don't compute or like, I'm very much into like the dignity of the semi-Roman legal system that America mm. has or, <laughs> you know, like- Yeah, the war
1: band spirit is really close at hand at all times.
0: Right, exactly. Which doesn't really map onto even a Republican values right. um, within the American context. And that's what's so jarring if you're a little more discerning and how you approach that. You know, and as I said, it is uh, some of the monologues are good, the plot doesn't really hold together. The set pieces are fantastic. I mean, worth watching, worth paying 3 bucks just for those and to just kind of be like delighted at how like deeply unironic the whole experience is. <laughs> yeah. You know, it would well, never get made now. No. The last movie that got made that was anything close to like to that was the original. movie. Yeah, definitely. You know, which still had like also a mild, exuberant. <laughs> exuberant, like maybe a little bit more than mild orientalism to it. You know,
1: <laughs> like, yeah, that was something that was so interesting about this movie because uh, if you just like looked at it and then went off of the most immediate signifiers you could find, you'd be like, yeah, extremely orientalist or whatever. But I think if you took it as part of a stream of movies or a tradition of filmmaking and then looked at like, what are its peers, what came before it, what came after it, especially what came after it. Like, honestly, probably like one of the best portrayals of Muslims that's ever been made in American cinema, like that. And the 13th warrior, I think. Yeah. While neither of those movies is exactly like extremely historically accurate or like anthropologically correct or whatever, like, there's a lot of things where I'm like, that's, you know, I'm pretty sure it's, like, not really Sharia-compliant to behead people who, like, drink out of your well, yeah <laughs> <as> Sean Connery <laughs> does at one point. Like, yeah. that seems, like, kind of made up. But nonetheless, no, those things being what they are, which is, like, really you would expect them from any movie, like, coming out of this part of the world. Like, there's no, something okay. above and over that, like, a certain kind of spirit of, like, you come to understand Mm -hmm. that Sean Connery (laughs) represents people who are different from us, but that we can actually come to understand. And then like Teddy Roosevelt is Mm -hmm. for you, this cypher.
0: Well, and that you can, you understand them through their harmonies and dissonances with each other, right? Right. Let me put it this way. The only like Obviously, because of Milius' distance from Berber culture or whatever, that's going to be a little bit more orientalized. However, America is almost, for lack of a better word, orientalized because of <laughs> Milius' idiosyncratic proclivities, as John and I were saying. It's not really like America. It's not even an America that like made sense in the Cold War context compared to other things i mean it's also clear that like how condescending tr's advisors are to him they think he's just like this fucking jock and don't understand his dignity even some of the marine corps generals and stuff like that don't totally trust him there are all these like weird things So this beautiful moment towards the end of the film where teddy roosevelt talks about if you choose the path of greatness you're ultimately choosing to be lonely and that you can really only be alone if you meet other great men who can understand that. And the Raizumi, even though they're enemies, is one such great man who lights the path of greatness. And that's what they provide each other, you know? And yeah. I think that does not map on to like fucking anything I could point to. That fits in with the rest of the Cold War pro America prestige.
1: No, like the world that's closest to it and most recent in our memory is early medieval Anglo Saxon poetry <laughs> about. <Yeah. laughs> great ring givers and their loyal servants or unloyal as it may be like that is F's. Cause you know, if you look at the action of it, it's like Teddy Roosevelt is basically like a King who's dispatching soldiers. Like that's the actual political action that you see. He has advisors. he just ignores them. There will be an election, but we aren't going to see it and he's going to win and <laughs> we move on. So There is a hostage situation. These ships are dispatched to the Moroccan coast. This is supposedly illegal, but we hear no more about that after it happens. We just know that this is not supposed to happen. They get there. The American diplomats in Morocco meet with an admiral and a captain and discuss, so what are we going to do to get this person back? We like the diplomats seem initially to be like, we're going to find some diplomatic solution using the pressure of our military now being here to maybe get more results. And the Admiral hands it over to the captain, who's like, actually, we're going to take over the government by storming the palace, killing everyone, (laughs) capturing (laughs) the leader alive. And and then they just do it. And so you watch these Marines. I love the shot where the Marines Mm -hmm. row ashore and march up and then march in to, I guess, I don't know what city, Fez, maybe. And the whole thing is like one long, beautiful shot, which is, you know, part of why I think... Milius is a great director as he understands things like watching that, like that just moves you deeply, like in some strange way to watch that unfold and he's able to pull it off so well. But even that is like, so the captain is like, you know, the war band leader, the Marines are his war band. They go do this, like nothing takes place within the context. Text of, like, chain of command, like, responsibility to these people, like, you know, all of those are vagaries of actual.
0: Well, it's good to juxtapose this with Spielberg, right? Because there's this moment in Saving Private Ryan where Tom Hanks' character is walking with his troops, and one of them is just like, you know, permission to speak freely. He goes, permission granted. He, the guy's basically like, why the fuck are we doing this? It's just one guy. And then Tom Hanks is just like, well, guys, what do you think? As if to remind the viewer that what this is all about is the democracy that America so prizes, right? And that, like that's even happening in this moment. There's no such moment in John <laughs> that He does not give a shit about that. He's not going to remind you what America is. He's not going to tell you how wonderful it is. He's just like, you know, TR is the ring giver for the United States Marines. <laughs> you know it's just it's
1: a totally different vibe and the scene right before they take over the government of morocco there's a great moment where they're talking with the diplomats and they realize like if we fail this could mean a world war and then they all kind of like stand together and look up into the sky past the camera i think a world war what a way to go out like you know yeah, like, that's yeah. great.
0: Like, let's do this thing. <laughs> yeah, but It's only worth it because that could be something that might happen. If we right. Decide, like, right.
1: the way in which they're utterly psychotic is so amazing. And it's so John Milius self-inserting. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So another thing to say is that, you know, Milius, the Walter character in the Big Lebowski is based off John Milius. You know, and even his kids are like, yeah, when we first saw that, we were just like, oh, it's dad. <laughs> You know, it's just <laughs> fucking Vietnam, there are rules. <laughs> you want a toe? I'll get you a toe. I think,
1: gosh, the end scene where, so at the very end, basically, like this guy, Sean Connery, the Rice he's captured this American woman. Uh, the reasons for it are like never that clear. It's kind of like just because he's an exuberant lord and also because he kind of wants some material benefit for his ongoing struggle but also kind of just like, whatever, it's more like, he's just living life day to day in some ways, but that be as it may. He's just vibing. So yeah, he agrees to take the woman back because they've developed obviously a rapport and respect or whatever. And they offered him guns and money and stuff. And he knows it's a trap, but he's like, you know, I don't believe in things like avoiding traps because I believe essentially in fate. And so it doesn't really matter. And it's all about like how you live. So he's taking her back and they're like meeting in this town. And of course he gets betrayed. And really the like architects of this betrayal are the Germans who are there who really want to wrestle back control of Morocco from the infringing Americans who were dropping in more troops and the French who are now bringing more troops. So the Germans capture him, the American Marines who were like completely nuts get the girl and they're staying the night in the village Meanwhile, all of these like Berber tribesmen now have their leader captured. so they're going to stage like an insanely epic cavalry charge into oncoming cannon fire. Meanwhile, and this is this I love this scene. So the woman who was captured by the Raisoli decides that she's not going to let him get betrayed. So she tricks the captain, the marine captain, grabs a knife, puts it to his throat, and it's like, all right, everyone put down your guns, disarms all these Marines. And he's like, just tell me what you want to do. Like, what's this all about? <laughs> like completely unfazed. And she's mm-hmm. like, you know, we're not going to betray this guy because he received the word of Teddy Roosevelt. And we have to honor that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's like, well, Lilith, I want to throw in with you.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. They're so these Marines just like...
1: stage a basically <sighs> suicidal assault on this German position to free him. And uh, you just have to watch it. I yeah. highly recommend it. It's a it. great like,
0: sword fight toward the end with a German officer that the riceuli ultimately lets go because he's an adequate foe and there's no need to kill him. Right. You know, like,
1: <laughs> I love that the extras who play the Marines did like an amazing job of being like, quintessentially like sort of insane american people who are like yeah, with just like, gleefully running into death
0: <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the missing teeth and tight mustaches yeah. like. <laughs> and so
1: you get this juxtaposition of the camera switching between this like sweeping epic charge of the berbers into the like the coming gunfire and then back to the americans and their little holdout like being besieged and i just remember thinking like this will this has never happened before in film and it never will again (laughs) like because it's essentially you know Mm -hmm. the metonym is clear (laughs) like americans noble true to their word awesome and jihadists true to their word noble awesome europeans (laughs) kind of disgusting people who (laughs) bow down to europeans kind of disgusting like we don't need to pay them any heed, really as some of them can be cool, but you know, that's about it. Yeah. That's incidental. And, yeah. You know, I, I was reflecting like, and this was made after the Iranian revolution, which was like the initial Islamic scare for mm-hmm. the West. When suddenly they kind of start showing up as bad guys in media right after that, because you had the hostage situation and like all that stuff going on in the late yeah, sure seventies. Yeah. I'm pretty sure this film by a few years comes after that. So I appreciated the fact that none of that was really able to staunch this envision.
0: No. And interestingly, it was screened for Gerald Ford and his administration and they loved it. (laughs) Yeah. So there's that (laughs) element to it. So, yeah, I mean, like watching this movie, I don't think, I don't feel a need to like rewatch it. You know, I'm almost more interested in some of what else Milius does, but I think it gave me a keener insight into like who he is as a creator because of its flaws. And because, you know, I've also seen, I was really lucky, and I'm lucky in that I have seen Lawrence of Arabia on film on the big screen, you know, and you can't watch The Wind and the Lion without thinking of Lawrence of Arabia, which is indeed... Just, I mean, it's better than most films, you know? (laughs) So, of course, it's better than this one. And this is sort of a love letter to Mm. Lawrence of Arabia in all sorts of ways. But it's for its flaws, for its weirdness, for its uniqueness, that you come to know John Milius as a creator a little bit better and, like, what he sees in the world and what he values. And I think the purest expression of that comes in a film that has very little dialogue very little dialogue which is so interesting for a guy whose career was punching up scripts writing some of the most iconic lines in american cinema that have just become assimilated into the culture you know like you know are you feeling lucky punk you know or do you feel like do you, you know like that type of thing And Conan has almost like no dialogue. It is all this like lyric atavistic ancient warrior culture thing. I mean, he understood like what I think is so profound about Conan, the thing that makes the movie work goes unacknowledged. And it's that Milius was so atavistic that he understood the importance of hospitality culture. You know, Conan meets these strangers on his mission to avenge his family's death after he's been trained up to be the super warrior or whatever. And it is only in meeting these strangers who share meals with him and whatever, after they have demonstrated that they are both indeed great and capable of violence or what have you, that they may then break bread together. That is one of the major operations of the plot. Mm -hmm. And that to me spoke to somebody who really, if he didn't do his homework, which I'm sure he did, really internalized the type of world that Conan the Barbarian would live in.
1: Yeah. It was really striking to me rewatching it for the first time in a few years, how, how little dialogue there was. And I'll have to say like there, Conan, when he does speak has been given some pretty good lines, like, which is of course, classic Milius. However, I don't think his delivery is ever super great, except for a couple moments. You know, some of them are like super famous and obvious ones.
0: What is best in life. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The, the best thing that Arnold like his best vocal performance is every time he meets somebody and laughs, <laughs> it's like yeah. something about it is so like genuine and real like yeah it feels a
0: true of Arnold Schwarzenegger himself and when Arnold talks about it in the documentary what I think is so fucking hilarious when he says, you know John understood who I was as an actor I was like <laughs> yeah you were just some fucking guy who was jazzed you know, but he had, like, Milius is right when he said that it's a Teutonic movie. You know, it has a Teutonic quality, so naturally you need a good Teuton for it. And there's hardly a better one than Arnold Schwarzenegger in his Juiced Up Prime. You know, right. and this is when people were saying that, like, Schwarzenegger's body and accent were an obstacle to his success. And I think that Milius understood something, did actually understand something about Arnold And what Arnold was as a screen presence that made him more than just like a punchline, more than like Hercules goes bananas.
1: Right. You know? Right. No, he attains way more gravitas than that, which is kind of remarkable.
0: Right. Especially given how like honestly kind of goofy the film is in, Mm -hmm. in a certain way. I mean, great practical effects in it. And Arnold was just straight up like, look, I don't know what I'm doing. Just tell me what to do and how to do it. And James Earl Jones like, was sort of seeing the results Arnold was getting by trusting John that much. And he was just like, you want to know what? Do you mind just doing the same thing for me? Like, I don't really want to think too hard about this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, I trust you. You know, which is, I think, shows how powerful Milius' vision was. You know, what's inspiring to me about Conan is its lyric quality so much of it has to do with this kinetic energy with the the set design with the costumes but it elevates it more than just like a blood and sand you know sandals and swords type of thing and puts it in this totally other like Nietzschean category you know that's really about the triumph of the powerful soul
1: There is absolutely something that you start to notice on repeat watches, especially of you're right. It's like all entirely physical. And when I I was reading a bunch of interviews about this movie, like maybe earlier this year, just for no reason, and they were talking about how, so like leading up to it, they had to spend like a year or something just doing kendo and like karate and like, all this horseback riding. They had to read whatever, like, insane Zen samurai tracks he had, like, come up with, like, translated from Japanese. And he was basically hammering it into them, like, this is who you are, like, you know, die on the battlefield and then kill your enemies once you know, like, all this kind of stuff that he had imbibed for a lot of his life. He was now trying to get it across to them like that. This is what you have to do to do this movie. And the idea was that if you're basically a highly competent Kendo swordsman, you're not going to have to think about that while we're filming because it's going to be second nature to you to do whatever I tell you to do because you've done it so many times because you trained this way. And so many aspects of it were athletic, like primarily athletic that they had to do leading up to it. And then according to the actors themselves, the filming of the movie was like an athletic feat in terms of how much they had to do kind of constantly every day in terms of just endurance and, and to perform for this movie to turn out the way that it needed to turn out. And once I read that, I started really thinking about how you yeah if you came to this and you were looking for like great performances or something in the vein of what you might normally expect out of a movie then you would just totally misunderstand this movie because like it wasn't going to give you that and it wasn't really about that but if you were able to look past that and see what it was doing which is so entwined i think with like physical achievement on some deep level like the two guys who he hired to play the like main kind of lieutenant type people for thulsa doom one of them was like a linebacker for the oakland raiders and the other one was a swedish bodybuilder and karate master like that, it, this That's is who he so was tight. after yeah. yeah yeah
0: thulsa doom is the villain played by james earl jones yeah and i think i want to put it this way like so you know i still do seminars for online great books and One of, it's very difficult for people who have not read them before and who come from our sort of post Christian secularized society, no matter how conservative they are, by the way, most of the people that do online great books are conservatives, right? Unsurprising Mm -hmm. is that they cannot wrap their heads around Achilles. They think he's a whiny teenager. Now in a certain light that might be true. In fact, I think if uh, Homer didn't exist and somebody made a successful, a, a decent movie about the Iliad, that would have been Roger Ebert's main complaint about the protagonist. Right? But the reason that Achilles is great is because he is also great in feeling right, is that he can feel such powerful, powerful feelings of betrayal, of loss, that that is part of the deal when it comes to his prowess on the battlefield. Milius understood this and eventually, you know, the Conan franchise gets taken away from him, which is fucking tragic. And I think this is part of, like he made Red Dawn and it fucked up his career. And then all of the zany shit he was up to that John and I talked about earlier sort of came back on him. But his hope was to turn Conan into, in his words, an Achilles type character who suffers powerfully, who has powerful victories and enormous emotions, and that that's what he wanted to give that character. That's right. to me, a man who understands greatness in an in, uh, in ancient sense.
1: Yeah, I've always felt so depressed thinking about that, the description of the trilogy, because I think the middle period was going to be like, you know, he succeeded in revenge. And then there would be oh, like obviously the middle act of basically suffering and having to learn from that suffering like mm-hmm. a lot more than he's already learned. And then through that, Coming to understand certain things about responsibility to other people. And, yeah, and then
0: maybe even being willing to die, right? Like, that could right. be a great... To die on behalf of something other than his own will and, and his then own you passion. You just stop
1: and you're like, fuck, that would have been so good. I know, I know. Like, Conan the Destroyer, it's a fun movie, but, like, it, it's that's about it, you know? It's, like, fun to watch. It's, like, you know...
0: It's a blast, you know? But... It doesn't understand anything.
1: Right, right. It doesn't
0: understand something about humanity and especially it doesn't understand something you know what i'm going to say about being human right because one of the things that you could maybe inveigh conan the barbarian and say like well this is like a masculinist maybe even misogynist movie but i think then you're also doing a huge disservice to conan's love interest in it who is clearly capable of incredible violence and prowess and cunning on the battlefield just like he is and the authentic tenderness that happens between them both when she brings him back to life and when she dies at the hands of Tulsa doom. I honestly, mean, it's honestly beautiful. Like yeah. I, I was like, there's, there was a type of masculinity that existed in American culture that I think this is evocative of and likely before that had capacity for that type of tenderness and intimacy, you know, go listen to Kiss Alive (laughs) 2. And the like, meet me in the ladies room is as authentic as the ballads about how I'll never get over you. You know, and those two things, those were closer worlds. I mean, you think of like Bruce Springsteen's like I'm on fire and it's like that type of, you know, intimacy and intensity And frankly, eroticism that seems to have totally dropped out of our understanding of maleness, but also because everything is fucking porn now, out of our understanding of what it means to be human.
1: Yeah, I've often thought about this aspect to things. They feel very lukewarm now. Like if you look at how James Bond is kind of transformed into basically asexual,
0: Asexual like, trauma culture. Everything. Yeah. Here, you want to hear my theory on this? I was talking to Cat D, AKA default friend, friend of the pod this week about this. And I said, everything's a three-star movie. Cause a three-star movie can be slotted into a genre. It can be turned into a Netflix film. And it's just good enough to keep on in the background while you keep checking Twitter or whatever other tabs you have open. Yeah. <laughs> and that's most of culture now three-star movie yeah sadly
1: (laughs) and you know what's so interesting is sandal bergman who plays um valeria i think she doesn't really ever do anything else like big again after this and i think you can kind of tell that she was more or less in a pretty similar boat to arnold not in that she was like totally not an actor but that the performance Milius got out of her was entirely because of his style of directing. Like you can mm-hmm. you can read more about it in some interviews, but they kind of go into how she was often like very nervous and it was hard for her to do the right thing. And she was only able to get there by basically like trusting him, which is what they talk about in the documentary. And he was able to turn her into somebody who gave like a pretty great performance in this movie but it seems like basically in the hands of other directors that wasn't ever able to happen again, Mm -hmm. which is like pretty sad, honestly, because she was great in this movie.
0: She was great. Well, the thing is like, one of the things that I loved about it is she looked like a real person, right? You know, she looked like a real woman, Mm -hmm. right? She didn't have like a Brazilian butt lift, you know, and then like, a fucking shredded six pack that's been digitally edited post-hoc because they've painted her tummy green so they can green screen abs on her. In addition (laughs) to putting her on a starvation sprinting diet for 12 weeks leading into production, you know, she looked athletic and I thought she was beautiful, Mm. but she didn't look augmented and like, you know, (laughs) look, I fucking miss that. There was something real about that it's also part of why part of what's amazing about conan is that you're watching fucking real things happen in frame the entire time Mm -hmm. you're watching practical effects you're watching people respond to practical effects and you're watching insane sets and set pieces that would not get built now they would just be green screened in right and And that's fucking sad man it's fucking sad like i'm sorry if i'm nostalgic in this way but it was better it was better
1: yeah i feel that way about like you know a lot of like star wars the old star wars
0: at least the old star wars. the
1: practical effects in that movie i mean for one they were groundbreaking and then changed the film industry forever in actually a really bad way in the way that you hate yeah but it yeah. came out of basically like a bunch of guys who just had to invent stuff that had never happened Mm -hmm. before with like a bunch of random crap and they managed something kind of incredible. And honestly, few things still look as good. And I don't mean good as in like, Oh, that is like aesthetically pleasing, but like this looks good in that it created a world aesthetically that made sense consistently with itself. And that was all really the creation of like a, big team of people who mm-hmm. like just did kind of amazing practical effects work like you're saying.
0: Right. Exactly. I forget his name. God, it's embarrassing. Savini. I think the guy who is famous for doing horror movie stuff, he runs like one of the best makeup artists and practical fact shops still in LA, Tom Savini, and he was a Vietnam vet. So mm-hmm. he understood like what it looked like the uh, f- head blowing up in the movie scanners. That's him. right? And he he figured out how to do that stuff. But what's interesting is he says, you know, these young students who come to me, they've never seen black and white Dracula. Mm. And, you know, he said, like none of them have read Dante's Inferno. And he says, and that's a tragedy because they don't understand where they come from. In other words, even these groundbreaking guys saw themselves in a tradition. They saw themselves as an extension and commentary on the inspirations that happened to them. Even if this was pop culture, it was connected to something that had happened and evolved over time and spoke to the achievements, and here I'm going to say something very problematic, of Western culture over time. Our culture doesn't operate like that anymore. So a movie like Conan the Barbarian can't happen because it's in dialogue with that as well, both at the level of design effect and in in intention, right? What we have now is rather than a culture of tradition, we have a culture of reference, which is surface level and shallow, right? It, It has nothing to do with an integrated sense of, our lives, our society coming out of things that have happened before. They are basically things that look back on older pieces of what are now immortal intellectual property that generate money. I'm not even saying money's bad or that to generate money's bad, right? What I am saying is that there is a degradation self-understanding in most of the creative arts. And that is very palpable in cinema. And that is why we'll never have another John Milius for a very long time.
1: I remember somebody said once that video games used to be made by people who read books, and now they're made by people who play the video games. And I was like, yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. That applies to more things than that. (laughs) At least Star Wars was George Lucas's vision, right? It was an individual's understanding, reckoning of this other world, right?
1: Right. I'll even give a pass to the prequel films on that alone in that and people will disagree, but like as sort of weird or bad as they may have been, they were at least still made by that same guy who was still trying to work that out for himself and was simply perhaps just allowed to do that too freely with no negative pushback on some of his, worst tendencies at that time.
0: Right. With no editorial input, right? Like nobody still, yeah.
1: It's a totally different experience than watching the focus group, you know, three that came after like in, in a lot of ways. And you can tell for sure that like no vision really united those, except as you say, make enough references to things that people can go woo. And then, like they'll be pleased. You know what I mean? It's just like, push the right buttons, get it out there. It doesn't, they barely work to me as movies in a lot of ways. Like, no,
0: I mean, everything's <laughs> just ready player
1: one. It's not even cause you know, it used to be like, okay, like this is a basic Hollywood blockbuster or whatever, but like, honestly the level of just basic narrative competency that those would have to like, churn something out to get money like is lacking now things no. like scenes don't connect
0: to other scenes in really major ways <laughs> so as you I, move through the film <laughs> i watched i watched kong versus godzilla right the other day i was like tired i'd worked all day or whatever and i was like i'm just gonna put this on because it's stupid it's three star movie actually probably more like a two but you know what yeah. I mean. yeah and first of all i hate how everything is like led two-tone now where it's like, this is the purple and green movie. Or like, this is the red <laughs> and blue movie, or this is the teal and light blue movie, you know, <laughs> teal and orange, yeah. movie, you know, like that type of thing. Or like, this is the fucking, you know, I mean, anyway, so it's very guilty of that. But I remember even back to right. Like, first of all, the first Godzilla movies are astonishing at their level of model making. And even if they become sort of like a gag and are frankly kind of like weird and totally incoherent later, the I forget his name, but the Japanese model maker for those original Godzilla movies was an auteur. Yeah, and he was a genius, and the, and they've held up because of that. Now, what we have in Kong versus Godzilla is something that's an obvious cash grab, uh, cast that's way too good for it. And there is no emotional coherence to the plot, right? Like, let's take a look at 1997's Godzilla, which soundtrack featured a weird remix of Green Day's Insomniac that involved Godzilla screaming in the background. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Right? So already like kind of shitty and it's like a shitty movie, right? (laughs) but within that movie there is a love story that gets resolved to the action of the plot that is normally how this goes right die hard is about a divorce Mm -hmm. right now we can say that those are like sort of stupid things or they just like serve the purpose of moving the plot forward and it's like well yeah duh you know people need to be emotionally invested in what they're watching we're now living in a world where they've basically just like taken that part out (laughs) and we're seeing what the results are. And the results are even worse than whatever popcorn blockbusters that we had before. And there is a famine of vision. And to me, when I think of somebody with vision, like actual vision, it is somebody like John Milius for all of his faults, for all of his idiosyncrasies, for all of maybe the political things that you might disagree with no one in that movie, not even Oliver Stone, who's his heaviest critic in that, despite the fact that they were friends, says that he was without vision.
1: Right. A little bit of fun trivia, actually. Oliver Stone wrote the first draft of Conan the Barbarian, and it was apparently an insane Vietnam War inspired acid trip of a movie with like Conan inspiration. He, I guess he like read every comic book and, and short story and then just like wrote this insane semi-autobiographical like war story. And Milius looked at it and he said, it was amazing. It was great. But that was not the movie I was going to make. Yeah. <laughs> like when he did
0: his rewrite. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's, that's, Milius had a different thing to say
1: right but, but I think like one of the points at the end of of the documentary emilius is that the time of his eclipse really coincides with the time of the eclipse of basically most tour directors mm-hmm. um, who haven't made it big enough to write their own check which those guys can keep doing whatever they want to do but everyone else like there's the door is shut no one else can get in and if you didn't make it then you're never going to because we've Move from essentially a period where these auteurs were welcomed in and necessary because like Hollywood was in a state of crisis. No one cared,
0: and the they, had to, change, they had to change. They had to change it up. Apart. Yeah, they had to change it up. They had to take risks in order to stay relevant.
1: Right, which is perhaps you know a classic historical fact of some sort of like decadent center and unnecessarily like revitalizing a fringe exterior, which has something new happening that can then come to the center and provide it with some new life because there's something more dynamic about that space. And these guys were, you know, if nothing, if not dynamic, all the directors who could come of age at that time, make a billion, like some of the most famous movies ever and the ones who make it, they can do whatever they want for the rest of their lives, but quickly now Hollywood has kind of like re-solidified itself, and the studio system is back in a different way, and people aren't willing to take risks on these weird movies anymore, not with those kinds of budgets, and pe- people don't like people who could scare away money, which definitely John Milius falls into that category. So it, it and it's all run by
0: around. Wall Street guys, they're total quants. that's why everything's a reboot. And look, there's a difference between like, there's obviously movies have been rebooted before now, right? A star is born is a great example. I will actually say that the latest star is born is actually really good. Also features Sam Elliott, you know, but it's not that it's not that like we will, Shakespeare is inexhaustible. We're always Mm -hmm. going to get more Shakespeare,
2: Mm -hmm. you know,
0: and we should, frankly. You know, I was talking with Micah the other day and he says in any healthy culture, we'd be getting a new Homer inspired movie every four to five five years, you know. It was
1: a, it was a really great moment in the documentary where I guess some like studio exec person's talking to Milius and she's like, what, what do, you, like, do you want to do? And he tells her this plot and she's like, oh, yeah, I don't think we do that kind of thing here. And she's sorry. like, that's not like, a
0: really good story.
1: Yeah. You're going to have to go like, no. And then it turns out like, he just told her the plot to Hamlet.
0: <laughs> she, <laughs> yeah. she didn't know though. what it Yeah. Was. She didn't know. Yeah, yeah. It was Macbeth. He was like, I guess she doesn't like Macbeth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I thought that so, so captured it. So it's not even that repetition is a problem. Right. You know, I wouldn't even say that. What is a problem is that it's very obvious that these are just like fucking cash grabs that are about serving the audience rather than challenging, provoking, or even basically it's doing nothing other than referencing to make money. Right? Like it's, that's why I think everybody lost their minds when True Detective came out because season one, I mean, the other seasons aren't that good in my opinion, like season one is so remarkable because it's so clearly this auteur experience. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I would even extend this to like the first like season of Lena Dunham's Girls. Hmm. Right. Despite the fact that she got a bunch of like, as the nymphet alumni girls would call them, nepotism babies to <laughs> act very poorly over her actually good writing. Is that yeah, it had the, this art tour quality to it.
1: The like last Chris Nolan movie to come out. What was that? Oh, Tenet. Tenet, like, I think succeeded for kind of similar reasons in that it was clearly just like something he really wanted to do. Yeah. That made some choices that were not about making money because I remember it getting like sort of pan for not being entirely like understandable to the viewer at all times, as mm. if that was like bad or something. But out of everything he's done, I probably enjoyed it the most of all his movies at a certain level. And
0: yeah. It's well, a, I want to like, see his Oppenheimer movie that's coming out. Are you fucking kidding me? Like, oh, I didn't even know about that. <laughs> yeah, of course I want Chris Nolan to do that. Like, it might not even be good, but at least that's somebody who has the cachet to do whatever the hell he wants until the studio to go screw. Right? I like, was going to say, what like, I want.
1: so it's still possible, but it's it has to find its way in through increasingly fewer avenues through people like that who who just made enough money that they can now kind of do what they want to do, or or other things, but it's, it's unfortunate, you know, and it might just be that we lived in a time where the confluence of like tons of free credit, like just mm-hmm. floating around the country and like sort of, you know, rising standards of living and the expectation of the continuance. Like there is a certain sort of thing to those decades. That's not the only thing that was there in those decades, but it was a part of it. And I, I, Any kind of like recent media form, I feel like has a built in nostalgia for whatever part of those years it took up, like for video games, it would be the nineties and maybe the late eighties where Mm -hmm. people will say, you know, like Age of Empires was developed by a bunch of guys who were doing like database software. And one day the like guy walked in the office and was like, Hey guys, like, why are we doing this? Do you guys want to make a video game? (laughs) Mm-hmm. And then they make like, you know, a genre defining video game and then go on to make a couple more. You know, it's just like stories like that happen not infrequently. And if you go back, you'll find a bunch of like weirdly flawed games that were however, like quite brilliant. And at least their aspirations of their execution. And the well, fact that they somebody we're trying made- to
0: make a game of I have no mouth and I must scream now right but, like that right. Fucking happened actually
1: <laughs> right there's there's so much kind of like interesting strange stuff that was possible because there was just enough resources floating around and no one really like knew what to do except to give people who seemed to have some kind of idea a ton of money and say okay go do it and like it would come back and make you some money and then you like lucked out on that investment or not but i think that A lot of our art forms seem to have kind of benefited from those moments and watching that get reined in has really kind of sucked.
0: Right. I mean, there's still some people doing interesting things in the indie game space. You know, I think Cruelty Squad is one that came out that's like totally wild and interesting. And I want to sum all of this up by just saying that I'm grateful that we had John Milius. We're going to juxtapose. We will juxtapose him. And Catherine Bigelow next, because I think that would actually be fruitful, both to understanding the eighties, but understanding America, obviously, and understanding views of masculine friendship, Mm. you know, because that's ultimately what those movies are about. And I want to say that like, people always say, oh, you know, it's the end of, this is Mark Fisher's thing, right? Like pop modernism is dead. We're not going to get anything new. We're stuck in this time lag. I think that if you go back to our episode on T.S. Eliot, the problem is, is that we're disconnected from our own tradition and so nothing new can happen. It is in fact the insistence on creating some weird novelty that is ironically or paradoxically the problem.
1: Mm. The documentary ends with a sadly, really unfulfilled little teaser that so Milius has a stroke at some point, heartbreaking, not that long ago, and he can't talk or like communicate for quite a while, but he eventually is able to get back most of the way there. It was, yeah, it was a really sad part to watch. And especially, you know, like you watch Steven Spielberg almost like cry talking about it which was interesting because I, you know, you imagine like Steven Spielberg, is that guy close to anyone anymore? But it's like, I guess he at least retains some feeling for that friend of youth, despite being like uber rich. Milius once said, you should never try to make things that people are going to like because you have no fucking clue what people are going to like. Only That's Steven right. Spielberg knows that.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yep.
1: So he can do that. But for the rest of us, we have to make the things that we need to make. Exactly. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. But so he gets over it. And then the very end, they tease like he's working on his Genghis Khan script. He's done a rewrite of it and he's producing. And also there's talks with Arnold about doing a King Conan movie that he would also write and produce. And there has been like nothing about either of those projects released since I think the last bit of information is that possibly the RZA was going to direct Genghis Khan. (laughs) And that was in like twenty, thirteen, fourteen, 14, and like just complete radio silence ever since then. So,
0: and if there's all there's only one person that can make that movie, right? The way it needs to be made, and it's John Milius. You right. know, John Milius also worked on Rome, the HBO thing. And the reason Rome is good and better than pretty much anything ever made about Rome, other than things that are basically Shakespeare adaptations is because he understood Rome as in important ways alien to us in its values.
2: Right. And it was it's... only
0: through understanding that alien quality to it, that you can enter into it successfully. And he's absolutely right. Only Steven Spielberg knows that the rest of us have to do things that we need to do. But where did that leave Steven Spielberg? Guess what movie he made? Ready Player One. Yeah. Which was just a remix of a bunch of like capcom like pieces of intellectual property and movies that steven spielberg has already made
1: yeah it's interesting because he was always somebody who didn't necessarily have to do what he wanted to do he could do what would make him some money and be popular and Mm. however that did not mean making movies like that in the 80s and 90s like for whatever they were they still were like interesting creations more or less if you think about mm-hmm. you know close encounters or any of that stuff like movies that were p- pretty popular but it's interesting now to watch him become the person cannibalizing his own work instead of somebody else doing that like stripping it for parts more or less mm-hmm. it's truly bizarre but no it I think Rome, honestly, it's sort of like the great last bit of Milius that we get, even though there were obviously a lot of hands on deck because it was a big HBO TV show and had many writers. He was still an important mm-hmm. you know, creator, producer, and writer for it. And I mean, so I'll say that when I was in high school, I basically watched it probably like a 100 times just over and over and over again because nothing I had ever seen was like that good. And I do think that you are able to watch like a completely different society play itself out in front of you in this like dramatic form. And that's not really like something that's that easy to get your hands on. Like, usually you'll just have to go read like a translation of like, I don't know, Gregory of tours, history of the Franks. And then you're mm-hmm. like, this is really different from what I'm used to. Like mm-hmm. this reasoning isn't even going in ways that I'm predicting all the time, but like getting a piece of modern media that appreciates something like Gregory of tours, history of the Franks, that's exceedingly rare mm-hmm. because we normally just assimilate things like that into something far more comfortable for us. But you, you, don't necessarily I mean maybe we can just say in the spirit of the podcast that that's probably culturally narcissistic (laughs) Mm -hmm. you have to at some point experience something outside of yourself and then realize that it stands like against you and it's not assimilatable
0: right and that you're better for it you know and that that's just the way it works so I think we There's a joy
1: that. in that, and maybe that's the exuberance.
0: Yeah, right, exactly, exactly. That's the, the the frictive exuberance of it. So, we went long on this one. We had way more to say about John Milius than I thought we would. This was fun. I hope you guys like it. We're excited about this series of doing directors. You know, I think we're going to do a nice, like, Halloween Lovecraft and movie Lovecraft. And we're going to do some, like, John Carpenter. We're going to do Catherine Bigelow. We're going to do some other ones. I know that there are more, like, high art ones to do but i just love some of these directors so much and i think that they deserve an acknowledgement they don't get even if i have like major critiques of some of what they choose to do so yeah that's it stay safe out there guys thanks so much for listening
1: yeah john